Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll visit the National Hellenic Museum in Chicago's Greektown neighborhood for a closer look at a new contemporary photo exhibit. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review the Chicago premiere of the play Babel. Later in the show, in honor of baseball season getting underway, I'll revisit my conversation with former Cubs manager and author Joe Madden, and we'll look back at the history of Moldorama machines. And that's all coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Like many cultural institutions, the National Hellenic Museum is gradually getting back into the swing of things after the pandemic pause. The Greektown neighborhood-based institution reopened this past fall with two new exhibitions, including the North American debut of a contemporary photo exhibit from Prince Nikolaos. The exhibit, titled Resilience, features 19 photographs that highlight Greece's relationship with nature. In two weeks, His Royal Highness will return to Chicago to present new pieces at the city's international art fair, Expo Chicago. I recently visited the museum to learn more about the National Hellenic Museum, which was founded in 1983. The mission is to share Greek history, art, and culture. This is Marianne Contouris, the museum's executive director. Contouris says the demographics of the people who visit the museum is pretty diverse. It's really a mix. In our public programs, for example, we recently partnered with the Chicago Architecture Center, and we were honored to have been selected as a site for Open House Chicago. And in the course of two days, we had almost 500 people come through the museum, and it was a mix of people. This past fall, the National Hellenic Museum opened Resilience, a photo exhibit from Prince Nikolaus. So in it, you'll see these striking series of images that speaks to the beauty and toughness of the Greek landscape, as well as these broader themes. So through the artist's lens, we're reminded of the fragility of our planet and also its remarkable resilience. We're talking as we walk through it. There's this historic Greek poem that he drew inspiration from. So first, if I could say, the images in the exhibition were born out of the first lockdown. So like many people, the artist sought solace in nature. And the body of work is inspired by a quote from the Greek poet Odysseus Elitis, who said, and I'm paraphrasing, when you deconstruct Greece, in the end you are left with a vine, an olive tree, and a boat. And from there you reconstruct her. And that's a universal theme, which also speaks to the mission of the museum. So for us to always be sharing these themes, these ideas, these stories that all people can relate to. So in the case of this, you know, we, in the case of this elitist quote, we can say, what are the three things that define us as individuals, as a community, as a city, as a family? And um, what is our essence? And from where would we reconstruct? So that's the beauty of that piece. In the 19 photographs, Prince Nikolaos explores those three themes. There's a water element, a grape and wine element, an olive oil and olive tree element. And those are captured through his lens to create these vibrant, highly saturated photographs. 
It almost feels like they're backlit, like a, a light box, but that's just because the space is so dark and the, the way the light hits the, these vibrant images. Right, so it, the photographs are set against an all-black interior, and the lights are carefully positioned, so they illuminate just the image themselves. And then the, the rich, vibrant, almost psychedelic colors that come through from his work are that, that much more poignant, I think, and that much stronger. And the museum's relationship with Prince Nikolaus will continue later this month. The National Hellenic Museum will make its Expo Chicago debut by presenting additional works by Prince Nikolaus. And we're excited to present this work and, um, and be part of this contemporary art exhibition. Contouris is also very excited about the return of an extremely popular museum program later this month. Going back to this idea that we share Greek history in relevant and meaningful ways, we have a return of our popular Homerathon. This is a reading of Homer's Odyssey in its entirety that takes place on April 21st and 22nd. And we partnered with University of Illinois Chicago, Department of Classics and Mediterranean Studies. We invite people of all ages to sign up and read a passage during this event or to attend as spectators and listen to this almost 3,000-year-old ancient poem uh, read out loud. It's really uh, an incredible experience, and it's wonderful to hear the various voices and to just listen to that body of work be recited in that way. And we um, read it in, um, in the round in a festive environment, and it's a pretty spectacular event, so we invite everybody to join us there. That was Marianne Contouris, the National Hellenic Museum's Executive Director. You can find out more about the museum's programming at nationalhellenicmuseum.org. And a quick reminder... If you listen to the art section every Sunday on WDCB, thank you. Remember, you can also find more on the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. Mention the name Moldorama to anyone who grew up in the Chicago area, and chances are they'll know instantaneously what you're referring to. Moldorama machines have been providing on-demand souvenirs and immediate joy to customers for over 60 years. Most locals have encountered the space-age-looking vending machines at one of a few Chicago institutions like a museum or the Brookfield Zoo. Why go to the gift shop when you can watch or really listen and, and smell your souvenir being made. The concept is pretty simple. Put your money in. You'll hear some noises. Melted plastic is being injected into a mold and then is cooled between two metal plates. And in about a minute, you have a colorful plastic figurine that usually corresponds with whatever exhibition or display you're near. The very first plastic molding vending machine made its debut at the Seattle World's Fair in 1962. A number of machines were produced and placed in museums and tourist attractions, but by the end of the decade, production of new Moldorama machines shut down. Over the decades, there have been some ownership changes. Today, the official Moldorama company is owned by the Jones family and is based in suburban Brookfield. 
A new exhibition at the Museum of Science and Industry is celebrating the souvenir-making nostalgia that is Moldorama. I visited the Hyde Park neighborhood-based museum to get an up-close look at Moldorama, molded for the future. I caught up with Jeff Bonomo, the museum's senior manager of special exhibitions. We talked about the generational interest in Moldorama and the company's strong local connections. So I think Chicago area residents have this relationship with Moldorama, and that's in part because really the, the history of these machines is tied to Illinois. Yeah, the founder actually is from Quincy, Illinois, and it's a funny story. He actually needed a piece for his nativity scene that he had lost, and then kind of started making missing pieces for people out of plaster. During World War II, plaster was not allowed to be imported in from Germany. So he had a need, um, and he realized a way to use injection molding to create pieces for his nativity scenes, and then later sound, found a need and an opportunity to turn it into kind of a souvenir business. So he made these Moldorama machines and later sold the rights to the American Retailers Association that now is known as Aramark. And then they had them throughout the country at uh, souvenir stops, tour stations, bus stations, um, and all the likes. But they kind of started here in Quincy and they kind of still have their headquarters here in Brookfield, Illinois. Right, I was reading about the transitions over the years, so it starts with this, gets passed on, but then at some point, this it's, is it like a family in Brookfield bought it? Yeah, there's uh, two main uh, players in the field of uh, injection molding souvenir machines, and the, the biggest one is here in Brookfield, Illinois, and they actually acquired the rights recently to the name Moldorama, so that is the name of their company, and then there's another one in uh, the south called Moldomatic. Um, but the Jones family has uh, had the machine since the early 70s, um, so they've been passing that around down through their generations, and they have about 65 machines in many different states. But they're kind of the heart of them are here in the Chicago land. And did I read somewhere no new machines have been produced since the 60s? That's correct. Those are still the same workhorses that have been around for almost 60 years that they just keep running well um, at their shops out in the suburbs um, and keep finding old machines to use as parts. Um, and just they keep them working, and it's a testament to the machine itself, I guess. And so just for people listening, I'm sure a lot of people like know the concept, but the, the Moldorama essentially is like this vending machine that you put in whatever the, the cost is uh, these days. I'm sure that's changed over the years. And then you can pick whatever type of figure and it makes it right in front of you. Yeah, that's about right. You put in your, your money at the machine of your choice. We have about nine here in the museum and they're usually themed around the exhibition that they're near. And then two large aluminum plates come together and uh, hot plastic is injected into the mold at 250 degrees. There's actually cold water running through the mold so it kind of essentially freezes when it hits the aluminum. And then the excess is blown out and then uh, the molds break apart and the pusher pushes out your hot souvenir you take it out of the machine. You're supposed to hold it upside down for a minute. I'm not sure why, but that's just what they tell us. Um, and then you have your souvenir right, made right before your eyes. And how would you, uh, since this is radio, how would you describe the smell? It, it smells like warm plastic, um, and that's one of the things most visitors have as far as the memory of the Moldorama here at the museum and other locations is just that warm wax smell. Um, so if you follow your nose around the museum this time of year, you'll find about nine different machines. Uh, four of which are in this new Moldorama exhibition. Of course, I had to get a mold while I was at the museum. I found a machine that made little yellow chicks. Lots of rumbling. 
eventually out popped a warm yellow plastic chick. The machine officially made its debut at like a World's Fair in 62, so this is the 60th anniversary. That's correct. We love an anniversary, so it's 60 years of Moldorama. <laughs> and as a part of the fun, we actually, Moldorama borrowed a mold from the 62 Fair in Seattle, which is the monorail. So you can actually create that mold here at the Museum of Science and Industry for a limited time. Is that being the, uh, the anniversary and then the local ties, was that the inspiration to do this exhibit? We've been actually thinking about this exhibition for probably more than 10 years. It's always kind of made the list when we talk about fun, quirky, niche exhibitions and there's such an underground following of Moldorama fans that uh, now is just the right time to do it. We had the space, uh, our friends at Moldorama had some extra machines, so uh, the anniversary was actually just kind of a, a wonderful mistake. Um, we weren't really planning on it, it was just a great coincidence. So what's in the uh, exhibit? So in the exhibition we have almost 150 different Moldorama souvenirs from the Jones family from throughout the years. It, throughout the country that have been made, so you can see those, which are really cool to see, including the first one ever done here at the museum, which was a Lincoln head in 1971. And then we have um, some really cool aluminum molds, which are the pieces that actually take the plastic and create your mold, including one which was rarely run because of the complexity, which is the Colleen Moore's Fairy Castle, which if anyone's been to the museum, they've probably seen the Fairy Castle in real life. Um, so that's down there, which is a real collectible among the Moldorama collectors. Okay. Um, of course, we have four Moldorama machines with all new to MSI molds, and they'll be changed out throughout the run of the exhibition over the next year. And then we have some information about just how the Moldorama is made, uh, the history of plastics, and even some uh, Bakelite, which is kind of the first uh, commercially used plastic from the early 1900s from our collection and made things a lot more uh, consumer accessible as far as cost and quantity. So we have some artifacts from then, and we have a great photo op for you to take with your first uh, Moldorama. Okay. So I, a lot of the things here at the museum, there's probably like a generational component. Families come and where they've come, and now they're bringing their kids and their grandkids. But with Moldorama, I would, there's probably a little bit of that too. Maybe like newer generations aren't as familiar, but like grandparents and parents. Yeah, I've seen a lot of parents bringing their young kids here, and they um, are just themselves enjoying the experience of watching their kids go through that experience of watching the Moldorama be made, smelling it, touching the warm Moldorama, and the kind of the satisfaction you get of seeing this uh, souvenir made right before your eyes. Um, so I think that's been fun to watch, but yeah, I think it's a generational thing. Everyone wants to pass that experience along to their uh, kids or grandkids when they come to the museum. And the museum has had Moldoramas here since the 70s? Yeah, 1971 is when we had the Lincoln bust in our Hall of Elements at the time, and it actually cost the guest a dime, um, but the actual material cost was a quarter, so Union Carbide was the sponsor of the exhibition, and they actually offset each mold by 15 cents. And how much does it cost these days? Currently it is a $5 souvenir, and of course you can use a credit card now, your phone, and still cash. That's Jeff Bonomo, the Museum of Science and Industry's Senior Manager of Special Exhibitions. Moldorama, Molded for the Future, will be on display through the fall. You can find more information at msichicago.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Good morning, Gary. 
Playwright Jacqueline Goldfinger paints a dark portrait of future America in their 2020 work Babel. The play, which won the Smith Prize for Political Theater, is making its Chicago premiere at Red Twist Theater. Babel follows two couples who are expecting. However, the journey to parenthood is much different in this imagined future where there are laws in place that aim to regulate fetuses' genetic codes. Directed here by Rinska Carrasco Prestoneri, Carrie, I would imagine there has to be quite a bit of world building at the beginning of this play to get everyone on the, the same page. Might expect. I mean, this play starts with the image of a woman kind of doing yoga stretches and vocalizing. She is joined on stage by her partner. The set at the very small Red Twist space kind of has this look that to me reminded me of like a 70s game show, like Match Game or something kind of curvilinear, you know, panels. A little antiseptic, but not necessarily a threatening environment. So a lot of what we learn about this world comes through the conversations between the two women we meet initially. They are Renee and Danny. They are a lesbian pair. Renee, who is the person who is doing the yoga stretches, we find out it has they're pregnant after she's pregnant after many years of trying but there's this process that they need to go through and that becomes unfolded over the next several scenes it's a process of certification we're kind of in brave new world territory here except there are not artificial wombs there are actual people with uteri who are still reproducing but whether or not they can do that and how they do that is determined by a government agency a board of doctors who have to sign off on their genetic history to make sure that they are in a position to create, you know, the quote-unquote perfect child. So any kind of cognitive disability, any kind of emotional kind of back history, or apparently we now have in this futuristic world that Jacqueline Goldring has created an ability to even genetically test for what might become signs of sociopathology later on. It's a moralistic fable in some ways about in the quest for perfection, what do we give up? What rights do we give up? What possibilities for human development do we give up? And while I appreciated the overall aim, I have to say I was a little mixed on the end results on this. Uh, Jonathan, I'd love to have you jump in and tell me what you think uh, is happening in this play. It begins, as you said, to be or not to be pregnant. It's a decision virtually all married couples face at one Mm -hmm. point, and it's challenging enough without the additional circumstances of uh, Jacqueline Goldfinger's uh, Babel, where she imagines a a dystopian, not-too-distant future, in which, as you said, embryos must be government-certified via genetic testing and deemed, and this is the important thing, compatible with society. Now, you mentioned that Renee, uh, of the couple of Renee and Danny, uh, Renee is pregnant, their best friends, a, a hetero couple, mm-hmm. Anne, Anne and Jamie, also are pregnant. And when their tests come back with different results, it not only fractures their friendship, but really comes close to destroying their marriages as well. And that's the basic story. There are a couple of surprises along the way, both of which involve Jamie, who doubles as a secret government psychological agent of a very special kind that I'm not going to say mm-hmm. anymore. It would be revealing <laughs> one of the surprises of the play. And the characters, you know, you mentioned Brave New World. The characters also spout a good deal of Newspeak-type recitation and cant about worthiness and potential and perfection. Okay, I cannot fault the four actors who are appealing and sympathetic under 
Director Rinska Carrasco Prestonary, uh, nor can I fault the intimate physical production on the sleek, uh, you said game show, 70s game show, to me, slightly futuristic set, all the curvilinear uh, forms and so forth, set by Jonathan Berg Einhorn. And yet, this is where I think I agree with you. Somehow, I didn't take to this play completely. It runs only 95 minutes, but it seemed long to me. It's also billed as a dark comedy, but it isn't a comedy at all. Mm -hmm. At least, I don't think so. I was trying to figure out why. What am I not getting? What is not engaging me? And I think maybe it's because everything is talked about, but nothing really is shown. And the play also gets off to a very, very kind of low-key start. A start that is low-key enough so it didn't engage me right out of the starting gate, and I never did become fully engaged. Yeah. Is, that, uh, is that unfair? I think so, too. Yeah, and, and another play that came to mind, Jonathan, I don't know if you saw uh, Zoe Kazan's After the Blast, which Broken Nose Theater produced last yeah. spring. I, don't, yeah. um, I was thinking about that. It's a similar story in a way, a couple that wishes to have a child. Of course, here they're living underground because, you know, as the title implies, there's been some kind of horrific apocalyptic event on the surface of the Earth. And again, there is a sense that you have to be psychologically fit in order to be allowed to reproduce. And in the uh, so what happens in After the Blast, a couple actually has like a robot child <laughs> that they are you know, supposed to be practicing with. Um, but that production, I felt, worked so much better for me because I was emotionally invested in the relationships of, these, of, the, of the couples that we see there. That did not happen in Babel. Danny's character is so very tightly wound and is such a control freak that it was kind of hard for me to understand why they ended up together in the first place. We might be told what the attraction was, but I agree with you. We don't actually see it. It's a very chilly play in that way, and I think because it's foregrounding ideas over the relationships and hasn't, at least to my mind, found a real a real warm way to, to, to kind of tie that together. Now, I know that apparently Goldfinger had cited, or others have cited, the uh, British sci-fi series Black Mirror as one of the inspirations. But here we're back to the idea of Maybe you do things in film or television that don't happen on stage. And on stage, when you have three-dimensional people, flesh-and-blood people in front of you, I feel like, especially, again, in this space as wonderfully intimate as Red Twist is, I want to see more of that spark, whether it's the, you know, the spark of attraction that they had initially that is maybe perhaps now changing under the stresses of those, this world that they're in. I wasn't quite convinced that Danny and Renee would have been friends with Anne and Jane. Um, other than the story needs needs it because they need that sort of counterpart hetero couple going through similar circumstances, right? And, and maybe this is a funny thing to say, given the content of the play itself. It felt a little predetermined to me. You know, I, that there are some surprises, but they were not as surprising as I think perhaps the playwright imagines, or at least maybe I sort of felt like I knew where things were going early on. And that might tie into what you were saying about it feeling a little long. Like, I kind of know where we're probably going to end up, and it feels like we're spinning our wheels a little bit. And again, I don't think it's the production itself. I, like you, think the actors did a lovely job. But I just, yeah, I just kind of walked out thinking, okay, yes, eugenics is bad. (laughs) Um, And and, and a difficult thing, and it does present us with moral conundrums. And yes, I think we can make connections. You know, the idea that telling people they can't have children is pretty much the same kind of authoritarian impulse as saying you must have them. But I just, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm I'm not sure what Goldfinger's focus is here. Is Babel a warning about government social meddling? 
or is the dystopian future only a set of bookends for a play exploring the issues of pregnancy under any circumstances? Right. And it feels to me actually more like the latter, uh, about pregnancy, pregnancy under any circumstances, rather than the former, a, a, yeah. a warning about uh, dystopian government. But I don't really I, yeah. know. I yeah. agree with you. Like, I think the things that resonated the most, and I, you know, I don't have kids, but the idea that, you know, when you're pregnant and you're worried and then your best friends are also expecting, you will inevitably compare your journey with theirs. Are, are, are we doing the right things? Are they doing the right things? Why are they getting this and we're not, you know, and it's, it, to me, that's a very human impulse. And I think that this play needs to lean more into the human rather than the intellectual framework that, that, uh, that Goldfinger has built. Babel has been promoted by the National New Play Network, a wonderful organization, mm-hmm. and it's receiving a number of productions around the country in the post-pandemic theater revival that we have going on now. Uh, and it's certainly a thought-provoking play, and it's well-written also, uh, uh, broadly speaking, even if I didn't feel a gut punch, and I gather, Carrie, you didn't feel a gut, what, gut, gut punch no. either. No, uh, no. It's, lo- it's, it's, it's pre- presented by Red Twist in the Edgewater neighborhood. It's on Bryn Mawr. Red Twist is a classic postage stamp size storefront <laughs> theater, and they always take on issue-related plays, sometimes old plays, classics, sometimes new ones, and they almost always do them well. So, you know, I would tell people uh, the acting is good, so maybe go see Babel and make your own decision about it. And I think and they... And, good Chicago actors, too. And they, they announced at the show that we were both at, Jonathan, that they are they have gotten some grant money and they are going to be doing some refurbishing, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. They're staying in that space, but you know, give, going to give it a little bit of a facelift, and certainly that's good news because I, yeah, I've, I've yeah. seen many things that I've enjoyed there, and this just this just wasn't one of the top numbers, I mean, one of the top productions that I've seen. But yes, there's, it, I do not fault them at all for picking this. I think it's an interesting, an interesting play that just fell short. Red Twist Theater's production of Babel continues through April 30th. Moving on, the 2023 Non-Equity Jeff Awards were handed out last week at the. Park West Theater. You both were at the, the ceremony. Fun night? Oh, Fun night. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the first time in four years that they've been able to get together. I think we did talk about one of the digital non-equity Jeff ceremonies during the COVID shutdown. Um, it was just a burst of energy. I don't know how you would feel about it, Jonathan, but it felt like this is a community. This is often affectionately the non-equity Jeffs referred to as theater prom, and it very much <laughs> felt like that. People were glammed out. People were happy to see each other. Um, and I thought it was a, a you know a very sweet evening, and in some cases a, a, a bittersweet evening as well. Um, but I, I would note the special Jeff Award this year went to Mirna Salazar, the late founder of the Chicago Latino Theater Alliance and the Destinos Festival, which both Jonathan and I have praised many times, I think, previously on this program. Um, and Mirna's influence, I think, was felt in the Jeffs beyond just the um, the award for her that her daughter accepted. Uh, on behalf of the family, uh, apparently she had been a big advocate for including short-run productions, which the Jeffs started doing uh, at, uh, during the shutdown and has continued. They have continued to do, and also plays that are in foreign language with subtitles. It, it felt a little bit like a new day at the Jeffs in some ways, Jonathan. I don't know how you felt about it, but um, well, yeah, I yeah, these were good. These were good developments. I'm saying <laughs> they they have they have refreshed the the show and the and the and the categories. And the circumstances, and uh, one thing that is not a new day that was uh, very much the same is the competitive cheering that goes on <laughs> at this event. 
uh, there are large contingents from the various uh, non-equity theater companies, especially those that have received you know multiple uh, nominations, and uh, they. They are very, very vocal, and it very much has a party vibe. And I yeah. was pleased, because I've been to a number of um, non-equity Jeff shows going back many, many years, um, and I was pleased to see that that energy uh, and involvement is, was not yeah. lost. Yeah, uh, well, one thing I would say, now this is the first live show they've had in four years, and it was filled with some good ideas, like some video segments uh, that gave insight onto some of the artists and so forth. But you have to edit. Sometimes you have to say no, even to good ideas. And this show ran more than three hours. And that <laughs> simply is too long, especially if you're not going to feed people till it's over. You can't have them, you can't have them drinking for three, three and a half hours and not give them anything to yeah. eat till 11 o'clock at night. Right. So they need I to keep it. Right. Yeah, I, I was uh, our hosts were uh, a longtime actor Mitchell Payne and Honey West, cabaret legend, of course. And we, I, you know, I think for Honey's troubles, she was give, uh, given a chance to sing a song from her upcoming uh, autobiographical show, The Boy in the Tutu. But Mitchell Payne made a comment earlier on about you know trying to urge recipients to keep the speeches short, which didn't always happen. But you know, if you're going to have snot bubbles and thank Jesus, do it quickly. <laughs> but you know, there were a number of interesting winners. Saya Berlatsky, who is 19 years old, uh, shared the Best New Work Prize for uh, her play Malapert Love, An Artistic Home. And uh, Takesha Yelton-Hunter, who won for Ruined, mentioned in her speech this was her first professional production. You know, things like that, I think, are really, really make the point that this is such a, you know, can be such a supportive community for people who are coming in, you know, very early, you know, very early on in their careers. This has been going on for a few years, but it's worth noting, I think, that unlike the Oscars, the Jeffs, both in the equity and non-equity, no longer do gender divisions for performers. So it's performer in a principal role play, performer in a supporting role musical, and men, women, non-binary are all, all you know, in the, all in the same. And there were a couple of non-binary performers who were recognized this year, which I think highlights, you know, the importance yeah. of having that category or and having also, those categories set up the way they are. I should say they also have, in some categories, uh, you know, they, there can be multiple winners under right. under right. this system. So it's uh, there were a couple, uh, there were several categories where there were two winners and one where there was three winners, right? Uh, which is a little bit unusual, but. Uh, it's not. Yeah. It's not one and, person takes it all right. all the time. And, and, and the big good. winner, a show that you and I talked about when it happened, uh, Candy Production Sweeney Todd, which was done in the basement of the Chopin Theater. Uh, that won for direction. It won best production musical, and it won, I think, uh, seemingly a, a crowd favorite for the stars, Caitlin Jackson, who played uh, Mrs. Lovett, and Kevin Webb, who played the title role of Sweeney. So that that's. Yeah, I, I don't know how often it is that perform. You know, the two leads have been, you know, winning in the same year, in the same category. But uh, you know, Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett were once again reunited on stage at the Park West on Monday night. So I know a lot of the industry shows up, but uh, can just fans buy tickets to the ceremony? I think if you get in early, but you know, that it's a pretty tight. <coughs> Sorry. Well, I think if you get in early, but generally they're they're filling up with tables of people from the nominated theaters and, you know, press and the Jeff Committee themselves. So the answer is yes, the general public can 
purchase tickets both to the non-equity Jeff Awards and to the and to the regular uh, equity Jeff Awards, uh, which are in the, you know, usually at the end of October or early November. Okay. As you mentioned, uh, the crowd was very very big and sold out, as it were, Park West, which which has a capacity of about 450 people. And uh, one of the things that occurred to me is it may be time for the uh, Joseph Jefferson Committee to, to seek a larger venue, though to find a venue that's larger and still maintains the party vibe, um, you know, and has four or five bars is difficult. But that's the challenge I would throw out to them. Sounds like it was a, a fun event, and uh, yeah, in about six months, the Equity Jeff Awards usually out at Drury Lane in Oak Brook. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Gary, before we go, I wanted to just uh, let people know, because I know there's a cult following for this show, that the Book of Mormon has returned to Chicago. <laughs> it is playing down at the Cadillac Palace Theater through April 16th. It is, it's as, as lively as engaging and as uh, scandalously satirical as ever. I can't imagine any true believer who is a Mormon ever going to see this show. And it also, of course, is not for kids. It is a very foul-mouthed Broadway musical, but it is very, very funny. The thought occurred to me, however, if this was a show that was not the Book of Mormon, if it was, say, the Book of Torah or the Book of Koran, or the book of New Testament, I don't think it ever would have seen the light of day. But well, the I book don't of know. Mormon, for those <laughs> who love it, and the house was full at the Cadillac Palace Theater, it's back again through April 16th. I will say, though, that we have seen, you know, the life of Brian, and there have been, I think, a lot of, you know, there was a, a very merry unauthorized children's Scientology pageant a few years ago. One thing I will say for the Mormons, though, and I don't know if they're still doing this, Jonathan, but I don't know if you recall that in the playbill, the Church of Latter-day Saints took out ads, and, this, you know, they were very tongue-in-cheek, and I thought very good-humored about it, saying, you know, you've seen the, you've seen the musical, now read the book. The book is always better. Right. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I think that was a, if we can't lick them, maybe we won't join them, but we'll certainly, you know, you know, ride alongside them and see if we can, you know, divert a few people into the, into the actual, <laughs> into the actual church. Well, I will look through my program and see if they, they still have an ad or not. All right. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, very Gary. welcome. I'm Gary Zydek. Governor J.B. Pritzker announced 2022 had the highest film and television production revenue in state history. Pritzker said the industry accounted for almost $700 million in revenue for Illinois businesses and $400 million in wages for workers. Our success in the film and TV production industry is more than just a set of revenue numbers. It means thousands of good-paying jobs. Pritzker credited the growth to the Illinois Film Production Tax Credit, which was passed in 2008 and recently extended until 2032, He said the success of a trainee program launched in Illinois to help improve diversity among film and television workers also attracted film crews to the state. Pritzker celebrated TV shows recently filmed in Illinois, including Hulu's The Bear and HBO Max's Somebody Somewhere. tuned into WDCB. This is the art section. I'm Gary Zydek. 
It's cold outside, but baseball season is officially underway. The 2023 season kicked off this past Thursday. Hope springs eternal for all 30 teams right now. Chicago area fans are hoping for better results after both the Cubs and White Sox underwhelmed last year. It's hard to believe that seven years ago this weekend, the Northsiders were just embarking on what would become a historic season, winning the team's first championship in 108 years. Here's the 0-1. This is going to be a tough play. The lovable losers finally broke through winning their first World Series since 1908. And even if you don't consider yourself a sports fan, it was hard to escape Cubs mania back in October of 2016. The person often credited with making that decades-in-the-making dream a reality is Joe Madden. The three-time MLB Manager of the Year did what no other Cubs skipper had been able to do in over 100 years, win the World Series. However, the glow of that championship didn't last as long as you might expect. The Northsiders parted way with Madden in the fall of 2019, and he went on to manage the team he broke in with, the Los Angeles Angels. Fast forward a few years, the Cubs are now in a rebuild, and Madden is out of baseball for the first time in over four decades. But he's keeping busy with the release of his first book, simply titled The Book of Joe. He co-wrote it with award-winning baseball journalist Tom Verducci. The book offers an in-depth look back at a life in baseball. Madden played in the minor leagues in the late 70s before becoming a scout, then a coach, and eventually a major league manager. It also explores Madden's outside-the-box thinking, which helps set him apart from a generation of baseball minds that tended to see things the same way. But the book also makes it clear that despite Madden's innovative spirit, he also has a deep respect for baseball's past. I caught up with Madden last fall just as the book was being released to talk about the Book of Joe. So if we start at the, the beginning of this project, when did the idea of what turned into the Book of Joe start coming together? For years, it's been uh, approached about doing something like this. And then I think at the end of the Cubs year, 2019 into 2020, I talked to uh, Tommy Baducci about doing something together because I just, I think Tommy's that good and he's that talented. So uh, we started speaking about it then. And then we got together with 12 and then Sean Desmond uh, with 12. And then, and then here comes the pandemic. And it just really uh, gave me so much time that I utilized that to just talk to a dictaphone for over 100 hours. I gave Tommy 100 hours of audio, and my sister, my, my wife's sister Louise was transcribing it, and then these guys would prod me on a daily basis to dig deeper, and that's, that's how this all came together. And then, and then the premise, though, I didn't want it just to be about me as a youngster playing ball and growing up, and it had to be more than that, and that's where Tommy and I got together with the idea of comparing and contrasting managers from the 80s up to present time, and and all my thinking and the different things I've done in between that and how it all uh, was influenced. It's more than just baseball. Hopefully there's a leadership component to it, I, I would want to believe. And, uh, and that was it. It, was, it had to be more than just your typical baseball book. I did, was not interested in that. Right. I saw something uh, where you were talking about this process where you recorded your stories and memories into this recorder and then would send them to, to Tom Verducci. Uh, and then as I was reading the book, I was like, wow, man, there's a, a lot of detail here. Joe must have a really good memory. 
Obviously, you've had this long and distinguished career. You've met lots of people. Is it a challenge going back and recalling all those stories and getting the, the people, places, and things and all those details in the in the right order? I know you had some help. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm weird about that. I, I, I really see things well from the past. And the part that they really helped me with was when I would talk about something, they would encourage me to get deeper into that moment or that thought. And just to drill, they drill down, drill down. That's all I kept hearing. And then I would have to try to get deeper into that memory. And um, it was great. It was great. Uh, the direction was so clear from these guys. And, um, and my recollection is pretty clear, too. Um, and that's that's really how this evolved. Combination of me being able to remember a lot of things that have occurred. I mean, in baseball, we're, weirdly, we're like that. We we years and places and and people, we are able to put it together. Uh, and if you throw a song in there from that particular time period, it really jog, jogs your memory. So it was a combination of a lot of those things. But it was it's pretty clear to me uh, what had gone in the past and a lot of the things that I, I talk about is very clear. So there's a few chapters I wanted to make sure we highlight. Chapter 5, titled, Try Not to Suck. We get the origins of that saying that you made famous. But then later in the chapter, there's a a deep dive into what it was like managing Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. I thought it was pretty enlightening as as a fan reading kind of about the the strategy that goes into something like that. What are your memories of of that Game 7? Yeah, it's pretty, again, it's very, you know, a lot of it was a conversation that occurred beforehand. We had talked about uh, Kyle to John, to Araldis. That was that was the game plan to get those guys and part of the plan. So there's all that little stuff that you do the day before uh, that uh, you're just trying to prepare people mentally for the moment that more than likely was going to occur. So that's vivid the day before with, with that. The lineup, not so much. The lineup was pretty much what we, what we thought it was going to be. Our lineup was uh, pretty much set. Uh, but then the game begins, and that's where... Uh, you love when theory and reality come together, but it's very it's very uh, infrequent that theory and reality come together in a baseball game. One of the biggest moves Madden made in that Game 7 was taking starter Kyle Hendricks out in the fifth inning despite a 5-1 Cubs lead. That's ball four to extend the fifth. And the batter will be Kipnis. There's a move coming here. And it is. Boy, this is an extremely quick hook. And with Kipnis coming up, a left-handed hitter. Lester's coming in. Here in the fifth. Like you said, there's no eighth game of the World Series. You have to be proactive in doing things, and you just can't wait. That's why I had to get Johnny up soon, Lester, and he had warmed up. So then Johnny sits down, and I'm thinking to myself, I can't keep warming this guy up and not put him in the game because if, if he becomes uh, used up uh, by filling in the bullpen, we have a, a lot less chance of winning this game. We need John Lester in this game. It, it eventually occurred, and I, I think I explained it there, where um, ball forward to Santana, and then here came Kipnis, who had been hitting the ball well, and then Lindor. See, the, the key to that whole thing was Lindor on deck and the fact that Johnny Lester is an experienced relief pitcher because they did not want several guys on for, for John uh, to come into the game. And you're almost forced to have uh, Kyle pitch to Lindor if that happens. And Lindor at that time was a much better left-handed than right-handed hitter. So you got all these different things going on. And that's why I made the move when I did. Plus, I talked to Rossi while they were still warming up, and he said, John is electric in the bullpen. He said his stuff was that good. So there's all these different things that help influence your decision. 
So I remember that uh, well. And then uh, as the game kept getting deeper, Johnny was so good. And I was just really wanting Johnny to get out of that inning. And there was that ground ball up the middle that gets past uh, Addison. And then he's got to go to the bullpen to Aroldis. One out before I wanted to do it, but had to do it. And eventually uh, Davis hits that home run and uh, everything turned in that moment. But this, this is all part of the planning before the game. Yeah, and I'll give you the last tidbit. The guy that made the last out, the ground ball to third base, through Mike Borzello, our game planner, he said, this guy has never, ever hit a left-handed curveball, Martinez. So we just were going to feed him all the curveballs we could, and eventually he hits that little ground ball to third base. So all this stuff is going on in Game 7 of the World Series, and there's no Game 8. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm talking with former Cubs manager Joe Madden. His new book, The Book of Joe, just came out. I also really enjoyed Chapter 7, which is titled Attitude is a Decision. We really get insight on what happens when preparation and opportunity meet. Getting hired to be Tampa Bay's manager in 2006 seems like one of the biggest moments in, in a career filled with lots of changes, but that seemed like... In retrospect, that was the right situation for you at the right moment? Absolutely. To, that was the right team. I mean, going to the, to the Red Sox was my first team. I would have never been, I don't think, permitted to evolve like I did. Uh, there would have been too many restrictions. People would have wanted to, no, you can't do that. Uh, no, we've got to try this instead. There would have been too much interference, I believe. But the Rays were so wide open at that time, never had done anything, and Andrew permitted me a wide berth. So I could do all the things I did in the minor leagues and instructional leagues and as a bench coach wanted to do, but I'm not the manager, so I'm not going to insist to a manager that he try something. So, yeah, that was the perfect blank canvas to be able to take everything that I've learned to that point and with the cooperation from Andrew to put things into, into implement it. And it was, that's exactly right. Uh, they're, to me, they were an expansion club. They had no success whatsoever. They were wide open, and that's all I could have asked for. And finally, uh, chapters 18 and 19 uh, were really fascinating. I live in Chicago. Uh, I'm a White Sox fan, but I, I, you know, I follow what was going on with the Cubs, and it's always thrown me when I think about how things played out after the 2016 World Series. And you talk about it pretty candidly in the book, does 2019 leave a, a bad taste in your mouth? Uh, yes and no. I mean, at the time, you know, when, when it just was over a little bit, only because I loved it there so much and I loved my guys so much. Uh, I loved the city. It was, you know, I didn't want to leave that place. Just don't get me. That's, that's really the tough, the, the bad taste would be having to leave there. The different things that uh, I had to implement that year. Yeah, at the time, I, I thought maybe I was wrong. I needed to change some things, but then... As the season was in progress, I figured out, no, you know, I've, I've kind of conceded too much here, but it was too late at that point. But if anything, I really thought that that group, our group, should have stayed together longer. We could have done some really good things. Three consecutive NLCSs, one World Series, losing a wild card after your team had played 42 out of 45 days, something nuts at the end of the season, and that team that got uh, incredibly hot, the Brewers just got so hot, and that none of that is spoken about it's not like the Cubs are so bad the the Brewers were so good and yeah the one thing I I enjoyed Jay and my wife and I enjoyed our stay there so much and I still it's best five years ever in baseball for me so outside of the Cubs what are your your favorite memories of the city of Chicago oh geez I love I love my bike trail 
God, I love riding up and down Lakeshore on my bike. Um, often, I mean, uh, for home for home for a week, I needed a night game to ride, but riding up and down there all the way up to Hollywood Beach. I would start from downtown and go up there and then come on back. It was a football field up there off to the right that I would stop and I'd do my exercises with and uh, have my music on. You see the skyline and you go, God, this is... I remember saying to myself, I'd be riding, I'd say to myself, I still got four more years here. <laughs> I still got three more years here. I still got two more years here. I say that to myself as I was riding up and down there. And of course, the, uh, the restaurant scene, incredible. And the fact that we had a restaurant there, Madden's Post was outstanding. It stinks. That, that's one part that really stinks, that that's no longer there. Because it was, the build was that great and the food was outstanding. So that is probably my biggest disappointment now. Even though I had to leave, but the fact that the restaurant was able to survive, that would have been wonderful. But the food and the people and the restaurants and, and just how the, the people treated you, the fans. On the street, I would get stopped all the time, but nobody wanted anything but except to say hello, and they really appreciated it. Continued good luck. It was great. The way the Cub fans interact with you it was so easy. It was beautiful. I would have to imagine if you... Uh... You're walking down a street in the Lakeview neighborhood these days. You would get you get mobbed by people. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's yeah, it it happens. Um, I haven't been back in a while, but uh, I see a lot of people from Chicago everywhere I go, and uh, they always it just happened. Uh, it happened I, uh, the other day at our uh, community center here. We uh, we partnered with uh, Penn State University for what we call STEAM, science, technology. Uh, engineering, and then we included arts and math, right? And so we have a STEAM concept, and the doubt that's the local chancellor of the local Penn State campus from Chicago, and of course, her kids are all excited, and I had to take a picture with her. So that doesn't happen with any other fan base. It's just the Cubs. Yeah. The Cubs. I don't want to oversimplify things. If you think back to those days in the in the 80s when you were with the Angels system and, and think about baseball today, what are the, the biggest changes to the way organizations are run? Yeah, initially, it's just that, um, quite frankly, just real baseball people were running it. Um, people that grew up in the industry, people that grew up in the game, people that had played the game were pretty much in charge of the game. Um, and now they, they're kind of more on the periphery. Uh, the new group now, of course, have become baseball people, but in a different way with a different method. Uh, but it's it's kind of uh, there's been a lot of pushback to, uh, to the to the previous generation of player or coach or manager or the previous two generations. It's just not um, it's not accepted. It's their 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 information, their wisdom, their experience is not wanted. It's just not wanted. Whereas back then, we if I could have sat with Billy Martin, if I could I did sit with Gene Mock, if I could have sat. With Branch Rickey, but I did sit with uh, Preston Gomez, who was a disciple, or, or, or Don Zimmer. I mean, I actually sat with uh, Carl Hubble. I mean, think about it. And I, I, I crave for those moments, whereas I don't think I crave for those moments. I don't think the group today would desire that as deeply, as wantingly, as, as importantly as I did, given the same opportunity. So it's, it's just it's run in a different way, by a different method, by a different group. So the biggest difference is purely baseball people, for lack of a better term, running the game compared to how it's going today. And from your point of view, we lose something when some of those things start to happen. It's, 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 not, it's not as good as it had been. My, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'd, I'd like to see it morph together more. 
because um, I do like uh, a lot of the, the new methods that are being employed. I do, but not to the point of excluding everybody else. My, I want baseball to be first and everything else to be second, where everything else is first and baseball is second. That's how I see it. So I would love to see the organization, the group, the owner that comes in and says, hey, we're going to turn back the clock here. We're going to bring in um, some real baseball folks, have them scout, have them run your minor league system, have them teach baseball, and we're going to incorporate the new information and the data and whatever. Absolutely, we're going to incorporate that. We're going to make sure that everybody's up to speed, but baseball is baseball first, and everything else comes second or third or fourth. I think some fans might be surprised because they identify you as this you know, trailblazer with new ideas, but you have this real appreciation for, for the past, and as you just said, kind of merging both sides uh, to make informed decisions. Uh, do you get that yes. sense, too, that people may have misconceptions about you? Um, I don't know. I, I think only because I'm considered uh, outside the box or the fact that I've tried different things, that automatically you, you're perceived to be different. But my, my whole game is rooted in tried and true and uh, fundamentals and teaching the game the right way. I've, I was taught properly, and I teach properly. Uh, I don't. I don't cut corners. I, I know how to teach somebody how to run the bases. I know how to teach somebody how to be a good receiver or outfield play. Or as a hitting coach, I could get right down to the smallest tidbit of mechanics. Not everybody can do that. But then again, when I saw that putting an extra guy on this side of the or four outfielders against David Ortiz might get in his head a little bit, I was all about it. Or as an example, everybody always used to say, even to uh, contradict old school. Don't make the first or third out of third base. My line has always been to get the third base with less than two outs as often as possible. So I guess I'm a contradiction within my own contradictions because I believe in both, but I just believe in what is the right thing to do here and what's the right way to describe it. And uh, I want baseball taught as baseball, and I want it supplemented. Analytics is a supplement. It can't be the game. Are you interested in managing again? Yeah, I am. I am. Uh, I am, but it has to be with the right dance partner. I just can't work with, and uh, n- nor do I believe I'll be attractive to any just anybody. It's got to be with the right people, with the right kind of uh, philosophical concepts, and where we could be aligned. Absolutely. So we've been kind of uh, baseball focused, but as you alluded to earlier, you know the book. A lot of the the lessons in the book apply to, to other things. I'm thinking of, um, I think chapter twenty. You talk about how you dipped your toe into this idea of the shift in baseball, of shifting defenses, and now it wasn't really widely accepted until you brought it to the, the forefront, and now we see it all the time. Of course, there's going to be a rule change coming next year, but uh, you know, something like that, thinking outside the box, that's something that applies to, to people no matter what their profession is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I, I, I believe what we talk about in this book will apply to groups or companies or industries outside of that, outside of the baseball industry. I think there's a lot of application, even in your family, there's application. Um, I believe that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because I get a lot of feedback from different people that like different things. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious. I'm eager to see how this all turns out. Um, having Tom as a partner, see, you have to, and it, I know you understand, but he is that good. His uh, ability to research the, for things I talked about and combine it with other examples to me kind of blew me away how in-depth he got with a lot of this stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased about it. I'm, I'm wanting it to reach an audience just wider than the baseball audience. I consider myself a pretty big baseball fan and familiar with a, a lot of different things surrounding the game, but I have to say I learned a lot reading your book. 
and I have a, an even deeper appreciation of, of what you've done. So, Joe, thanks so much for, for making That's time. cool, man. Thank, thank you, guys. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. That's former Cubs manager Joe Madden. He's the author of the book of Joe. It's available everywhere books are sold. When you step to the plate, when you swing and fall, if you play, you gotta know how it's done. Can you catch, can you hold a hard one? I mean, baby! And that's going to wrap up this edition of the arts section. But remember, you can find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want. Plus, pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Know what it's all about Do you, baby Know what it's all about